welcome to Nostalgia Cast. Commit. Your weekly roundup of the best and most up-to-date nostalgic news where we discuss the stories and give our thoughts about airline observations. What's the deal? What's the deal? With with the mall. What was the what was the person I was doing where it just sounded like Seinfeld? Ooh la la. Oh yeah. Ooh la la. Ooh la la. I am your host. Who thinks Moltres and Articuno are okay, but I'm all about Zapdos. Andrew Price. Your son. I don't even want, your son I don't even want to know what that is. Get Theo in here. Ask him. Say just, it again. Just say just say Zapdos. Theo, do you know what Zapdos is? What? Zapdos. Zapdos? Yeah. Are you talking about a Pokemon? It's a Pokemon? Okay. Yeah. How is it? Is it Pokemon? Yeah. Yeah, Zapdos. Okay. It's not Zapdos, it's Zapdos. Oh, oh, Zapdos. Oh, I got corrected. <laughs> Jeez. And Dad Beats, a.k.a. Kirk Pinchon. Namaste. Uh, how's it going? Oh, man, it's going great. We solved everything. We did. Since we were last time. Everything's been yep, it's all, solved. It's There's all no good. problems. It's all fine. It's all good. We're great. There's no problems in the world. Uh, uh, we, 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 we missed last week. We didn't do an episode last week. A lot of stuff going on. Uh, we're down. We're down one Palo. <laughs> Damn Tyler, him. Tyler is, uh, uh, you know that song? You probably don't. Uh, uh, stuck here in Mexico, sick as a dog. My head is sh- uh, swimming in this border town fog. No, but I already know I don't like it. Yeah, well, it's it's a country song from the nineties. But there you go. Tyler is stranded in the in in the motherland, Bakersfield, California. Stuck down there. His car is broken down. He's probably having a terrible time. It's Shout out to Tyler. Very on brand for Tyler. Yep. Uh, but yeah, we missed we missed last week. A lot of stuff happened in the world. Yeah. Not not a whole lot happened in the nostalgia sphere. No. That's uh that's okay. It yeah. happens. Yeah. Uh but we got we got some things here. We got some interesting things here. We got some nugs. We yeah. got some nuggets. So let's just let's 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 just let's bite into the nuggets, Kirk. Let's let's chew on them nug um, nugs. And you know, let's let's just get right to it. We're not we don't have All a top right. of the show. We don't have like a little thing. We don't have like a little like philosophical or business topic to talk about. Let's just get right into it because the people want to know. Let's just cut to the chase. Everyone wants to know. Everyone's waiting. It's the elephant in the room. Everybody wants us to talk about this. SpongeBob SquarePants is gay, Kirk. Um, yes. Okay. He's gay. SpongeBob SquarePants sexuality has entered the chat. And lo and behold... The bikini bottom dweller might be, as many suspected for years, gay. Nickelodeon tweeted Saturday in support of Pride Month and attached the photos of three of their canon characters as a clear indicator that they're all part of the LGBTQ community. Uh, But without actually saying it outright, 
all of the characters, uh, SpongeBob, uh, Schwaz Schwartz from Henry Danger, and Korra from the Avatar spinoff, Legend of Korra, are featured in a rainbow color background. What's interesting is fans have known for a while Korra was gay and uh, gay or bisexual, as it was revealed in the show itself. As for Schwaz, the actor who plays him, Michael D. Cohen, is a transgender man in real life. Uh, so that leaves the Krusty Krabs fry cook. If the other two are clearly members of the community, it makes some people think the tweet is about more than declaring SpongeBob an ally. Instead, they think it's his coming out. Uh, of course, we got to say folks had their suspicions for a long time. If you know, you know, we won't break it down for boomers. Uh, yeah, so um, that I mean, that's just been a running thing for for years is like, oh, is SpongeBob gay? Um which is it's funny because it's like it started off as kind of like a stereotype of just like people thought he was gay because he's like very flamboyant. Um, and uh, while, you know, what Nickelodeon didn't literally just say SpongeBob's gay, but, the, you know, he they put him in this in this pride uh, celebration post alongside two other very explicitly LGBTQ um uh, characters or, or people. So, you know, it, it seems pretty explicit what they were saying. Um, and it's, it, yeah, like, like I said, it's funny cause it started out, it, it started out as just people. It was started out as like a stereotypical joke of just like, Oh, is SpongeBob gay because he, he acts like that or whatever. Uh, so it, it, it's funny to me for the, uh, the, you know, the company that owns him to like reclaim that and actually really make him gay. Um, that, I don't know. Something something's humorous about that. I I don't know if I don't know if it's explo I don't know if I feel like it's exploitative or if I feel like it's really cool to basically turn that around on people and be like, yeah, he is fucking gay. Get over it. Yeah, I don't. It doesn't feel like it's exploitative to me. It feels, and I'm sorry to use this word. It feels organic. Um, it does feel like it came from <coughs> from a place of love. I thought. Were there people going, no, he's not gay, he's asexual? Was that another thing? Or am I just reading that yeah, wrong? So that, there was another. Yes, that, that was that was said years ago, which I think that was said in a time when a character being gay was much more controversial. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that was that was back in the in the nineties or the early two thousands. Um Nickelodeon and the creator of SpongeBob, Steven Hilmberg, basically like came out and kind of made official statements saying he was not gay. He's asexual. And I think that mm -hmm. was a way that was, that was a way for them to kind of, um, kind of like not take a stand, like any kind of stand one way or the other, just kind of be middle of the road because mm -hmm. there was a lot, <coughs> there was a, there was this bubbling community of people who kind of were starting to regard SpongeBob as like a gay icon. So he was being like, co-opted by the lgbtq community is like he's you know he's gay in the in, like the, I, I i'm trying to think of other examples of that but there are there are characters a lot of times where like the lgbtq community like for la in a vacuum of prominent gay pop cultural characters for them to represent them they sort of like claim characters that mm -hmm. have never been explicitly um called gay but like have that kind of vibe to them. Mm -hmm. And I think SpongeBob was starting to become one of those. But then there was the backlash of the people who were like, you know, I don't want my kids being exposed to gayness. 
like I don't want a, yeah. I don't want a cartoon to turn them gay or whatever. So at the time in the early 2000s or late 90s or whatever it was, I think that was Nickelodeon kind of like trying to take a middle of the road, uncontroversial stance of just like, we're not even going to get into the controversy of that. Like he's asexual. He has he has no sexual identity whatsoever, mm-hmm. um, you know, just to kind of assuage both. You, you assuage yeah. the homophobes while also um, not necessarily offending the gay community. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that th- a lot uh, times have changed since then. I, I, I think that they uh, I mean, I can't speak for Steven Hillenberg or what his views on uh, um, gay people was. Uh, I would assume that he wasn't like homophobic or against that. Uh, I would like to assume that he was just kind of like I said, kind of taking a bit of like a corporate like middle of the road, unoffensive stance. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there's no, there's no way to know that now because he passed away. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now in, in the light of, you know, a new, a new era, uh, where, where that kind of thing is a lot less controversial, or at least it's a lot less stigmatized to yeah. come out in support of it. Uh, they've basically all, but confirmed that they, uh, I mean, I, I don't think we'll be seeing any episodes of SpongeBob SquarePants anytime soon where he gets a boyfriend or something like that. But that was my question. He should. That'd be great. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that that shouldn't happen, but I I, I doubt that they'll go that yeah. far as to like, because yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. That's, and that's why I say, like, I don't know if I feel this like this is exploitative or kind of cool because people will do this a lot of times where like they'll kind of try to like bandwagon onto the allyship Mm -hmm. uh by being like well you know this character my character is gay like like you know (laughs) jk rowling with with dumbledore how like she you know years after the books had concluded um or not maybe not years but at some point after the book series had been written she made an official statement confirming that dumbledore was gay yeah and it's like that's all that's all well and cool but you never actually that's just like a outside of the book like non-canon fan servicey thing uh that you you never actually wrote a a real openly gay character in your books so it's almost like you know it's it's like if i you know whatever if i if i if i wrote like if i wrote some like hardcore manly action movie featuring like these tough dudes and there's no mm-hmm. women in it, no gay characters. And it's just these macho men fighting each other. And, <coughs> um, and then after the fact was criticized for like, not in writing a, like, uh, diverse characters into my movie. There was no women in it. No, you know, LGBTQ, uh, characters, no, no, characters of color and in response to that i was like oh well the main character is gay you know you by the way you've just described basically every action movie from the 80s yeah but if yeah but if you went back and and someone criticized the fact that like you know predator is you know doesn't have like a diversity in it and then shane black was like oh well you know uh Arnold Schwarzenegger was gay. His character well, was gay. Like the, like the actual predator was gay. Yeah, the, the predator. The, you don't know that the predator is gay. That's canon. <laughs> That's actually it's a planet of gay character like peep creatures. They they're all gay. I can't believe you didn't pick up on that. Um. 
so yeah, it's 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 one of those weird things where it's like it's cool, but then the devil's advocate of me wants to kind of examine it and be like, is this really like cool or is this like a company trying to like glom on to a movement? Uh, I could see where you're going with that if you if there had never been any backstory or history of it, but there seems like there's such a history of it that it wasn't just all of a sudden, hey, guess what? Changes are made. So I think it, it feels like it's a little more honest from from my perspective. Yeah, I hope. Yeah, I'm not I even. I'm not a, even saying. I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm not even going full force with this and being like, "Fuck Nickelodeon!" Like, it's just. It's just a. It's just a. I always, I always wonder about these in these in these situations. Whenever companies make these statements, it's like, you know, it it feels impossible to parse out the sincerity from the like, we are a company just doing what we think people want us to do so that we can continue making money. It's in your nature to question. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, Michael Keaton is coming back as Batman. Yes, I don't even know how I missed this. I I I, 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 I missed that adding to this. You. Yeah, I know, and I, I I don't know how I didn't put it in the outline. But yeah, Michael Keaton is is returning as Batman. Um, he's coming back as Batman as like an old man Batman for this uh, Flash movie that's coming out, the uh, Flashpoint movie that's being developed, which is this kind of this movie that's based on this big comic book event that involves a lot of time travel and kind of multi universe stuff uh and and uh and michael keaton is going to come and be batman it's the, it's the the best news of the week yeah uh i mean it's it's it, i'm a huge michael keaton fan and uh especially the idea of like oh it's an old batman mm-hmm. like he's like they're not going to try to make it like oh he's still got you know he's still got spunk i want to see old i want to see old michael keaton go Oh my god, my fucking back! Yeah, I mean, it's like gotta, you know, the the Dark Knight Returns. That was what that whole book was about. It's like a seminal uh, comic from the '80s that was done by Frank Miller, uh, and it was uh, it was all about uh, like a future, like you know, twenty years into the future, Batman is old, and he's kind of like coming out of retirement, and his body's all aged and. He's in pain and, you know, struggling to continue doing the work with his old body. Yeah. And it's really cool. I love it. Yeah. I'm real happy. Yeah, it's great. I don't know if this means anything to you. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the movie, but I don't know. I don't know if this movie has any kind of affinity for you, but uh, they're going to they're remaking Twister. <gasps> no, I have no. Uh, I've <laughs> for, seen it. For a second, I was like, is this like. Yeah. Some weird, this weird vein of nostalgia that I've tapped into with you, or like for whatever reason you just loved Twister. I have a story <laughs> about Twister, but go ahead, I'll I'll say it at the end. But uh, uh, yeah, great Twister, sure. In a world, in a world where in no movie world. is sacred, Universal Pictures is in the early stages of developing a remake, a reboot of Twister. Yes, the tornado movie from the 90s that starred Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton is getting a new movie. Currently, Joseph Kaczynski, who directed Top Gun Maverick, is attached to direct the feature film, which hasn't begun casting quite yet. 
Frank Marshall is currently attached to produce and is wrangling writers to handle penning the script for another movie about storm chasers. Maybe with the new technology we have now, they could spin the story in some new and unique way, but it does seem like it was pr a product of its decade. I guess we'll find out soon enough when Universal decides to continue remaking and rebooting every one of their tentpole films. Uh, there aren't any de details quite yet because it's so early in development, but the original Twister went, to, went on to gross $494 million at the global box office, which was huge for a 90s blockbuster, especially one that wasn't based on an existing property. Uh, I should... What if I just did every one of these news pieces in the in the movie trailer voice? What if that was just what this yeah. podcast was? No, I'm here for it. I'm here um, for it. Yeah, I uh, I have like a weird relationship with Twister, where um, my brother like loved this movie, and it was it was a movie that he watched over and over again. So I've seen this movie a million times. But I wasn't watching it from a place of love because I didn't it wasn't like a movie I loved that much. Like mm -hmm. I didn't hate it. I didn't dislike the movie, but I wasn't watching this movie over and over again on repeat from like a place of passion. So I got very sick of this movie. Like, oh, OK, if you watch a movie over and over again and it's not a movie that you deeply love and have a passion for, like you will grow to hate it. Yeah, um, that's normal. So I, I got really sick of this movie when I was a kid. Um, and I don't I can see that I don't dislike it, but I, yeah, I just have I have like weird negative memories associated with this. It's like this and like the James the 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 Pierce Brosnan James Bond movies. I just have like a oh, I have a very yeah I have a very negative association with them because my brother loved them and he watched them over and over again, and I just got so sick of them. I um, it's fine like. Twister, when I saw it, I saw it in the movie theater. I was like, oh, this is good. I never need to see it again. And if you're going to reboot something, why not reboot this with better technology? Um, here's a little, I'm going to hit you with some back, uh, some backstory, some hot goss. You got S Philip Seymour Hoffman cast in this movie. Yes. Not a joke. Kind of true. Not me. But um, I heard a story about a guy... Uh, when I first moved here, who uh, was a working actor and uh, had done a lot of bit parts in movies and TVs and was kind of on the come up. And he got offered a role in Twister and he was kind of like, meh, it's not big enough and turned it down. And that role went to Philip Seymour Hoffman. Well, at a certain point, that was like, man, I missed my fucking... I missed it. I missed my opportunity. Yeah. I missed my boat. You, you done fucked up. But then, and but then, time makes a fool of all of us. Because then, at some point, it's like, well, at least I didn't fucking get it horribly addicted to heroin and end up dying alone in my apartment. Um, yeah, but he got to be in Twister. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so, so there you go. He got to and, be in Twister and along came Polly. Yeah, I'm not going to obviously name the person. <laughs> But I'm going to say this because then you'll understand. Here's my reference. I already know what it's going to be. I already know. Is it? Just What's up, bitch? <laughs> it's, it's that guy. Well, now I wish it, it, that it happened. Yeah, it's that guy. So it's my favorite story about Hollywood. Dummies. I would rather 
Philip Seymour Hoffman be on this earth than that guy. <laughs> and the guy who came up to me and said, what's up, bitch? <laughs> um, yeah, I like I said, it's weird. I, I, I don't hate this movie, but and I feel like a lot of people have a like love this movie. Like it's like a weird cult hit. I think they I do. Mean, not they even really... a cult, not even a cult hit because it was successful. But I just mean in the years since then, like people have retained this like weird cult love for this movie. Yeah, because it's on cable so much yeah. that it's just kind of burned in their brains as a kid. I mean, sure, remake it. I mean, it's yeah. it's not sacred ground, and the technology will be great. And hooray, bring back Jamie Gertz, though. Yep. <laughs> just, <laughs> Otherwise, I'm not fucking seeing it. <laughs> it's like a totally new cast, but then she's just the same. Yeah, she's be, just the exact same character yeah. <laughs> in it. Yep, that's all I want. Um. So, uh, one of my favorite movies of all time, I've talked about it on the show before, I think, like, like recently I've talked about this. I forget why. Uh, but one of my favorite movies of all time is Scott Pilgrim versus the world. And, uh, you know, I love the movie. I love the books. Uh, I've been a huge fan for a long time. Um, uh, and you know, famously the movie came out. I think if I remember correctly, the movie cost, like a hundred it cost like 130 million dollars to make and it only mm-hmm. made like 50 million dollars at the box office so it was, oh, wow i know yeah. it was that much <laughs> so it, it was this, cost that much it was this like it was this like epic box office flop uh because because i just yeah i don't i just don't think people yeah it's just one of those movies where it, the movie is great and i fucking it's a great love movie. it i don't get it and don't, it's, it's it's just a fun movie yeah and it's developed this cult status it, it it developed a cult status like immediately, like it it had a cult status like as it came out and as it was like coming on video and things like that. But but they just couldn't get people to come out to the theater. Yeah, it's um, true. So it was a huge flop. Um, but like I said, it's 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 developed in the last ten years this huge cult status, and you know it's one of those movies like uh, like Blade Runner or whatever, where you know it it. it was a total failure at the box office, but it's sort of legacy and it's mm-hmm. uh, has, has endured kind of bigger than it ever could have been. as just, as just a successful movie at the box office. Um, kind of like, you know, the, the whole thing where uh, citizen Kane lost the Oscar, the best picture Oscar mm-hmm. to how green is your pasture. And it's like, have you ever? Do you know how yeah. green is your pasture is? Just Have you ever watched name. that movie? Do you know? No, <laughs> no one knows that movie. Yeah. Um. So, uh, it looks like there's uh talks for them to develop a and and people wanted a sequel. Everyone wanted a sequel, but of course they were never going to make a sequel because this movie was insanely expensive and made no money. But now they're talking about and and now it's been ten years. All these actors are older. It, unless they made like a weird like. Scott Pilgrim in his 30s type movie. You know, it just wouldn't work. You'd be here for that. Oh, I would definitely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Especially because it would kind of follow me and my sort of life trajectory. Because when it, when this movie came out, I was in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. And so the movie was like my... The, it, the movie was about people like me and like mm-hmm. in my sort of life experiences. And if a movie came out now, it would just be like it would continue to follow with where I'm at in my life. Yeah, I would I would totally see that sequel. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they're talking about doing like an animated 
um, like an animated uh, a, 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 an animated short project. Like I don't know if you ever, if you ever saw the Animatrix. I know of it. Yeah, I know they, the name of it. They came out with a with a with a DVD called the Animatrix that uh af like I forget it was somewhere either it was I think it was in between Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions, um, but it was a it was a straight to DVD thing where it was a series of animated shorts and all the animated shorts were all directed by different people and animated by different uh animation houses or animators but they all took place within the matrix universe um and it was like a it was like a really bit popular thing like it it did really well uh it, it, it did better and i think was regarded higher than even any of the matrix sequels were um and they did a similar thing with there was a there was a Batman um, anthology animated DVD that came out years ago. I forget the name of it, but it was a oh, okay. it was a bunch of different animated Batman shorts um, released as a DVD. So they're talking about doing a similar thing for Scott Pilgrim, um, where they'll release a, a, a Blu-ray or streaming whatever uh, of just a, an anthology series of animated shorts within the Scott Pilgrim universe by a bunch of different creators and uh, utilizing characters within the world and all that stuff. Um, and, you know, the, these things are cool. Like I said, I, I doubt that there's ever going to be anything that comes of this. I, I, I don't I think that the ship has sailed on Scott Pilgrim as a movie property. But, you know, a lot of times they'll do things like this where they come out with they come out with something like this to gauge like interest. And oh, it's like testing the waters a bit to see if, hey, if you like this, maybe we can get more money and get more support and do something bigger. Yeah. So, you know, there could be a situation where this doesn't insanely well. And then on the, on the strength of that, they decide that they want to make another Scott Pilgrim movie. I doubt that's going to happen. But, you know, you can all a boy can always dream. Let me pitch it to you. What if it's this? I'm trying to remember because I, I, lo- I love the movie and I've only seen it like once. So it's like they're in their 30s. And it's Scott Pilgrim, but it's Scott Pilgrim not versus all the boyfriends because now he's divorced from that girl. And yeah. it's all the all the guys she's been dating since the divorce. Oh, and that's yeah, that's so perfect. That's because, yeah, that <laughs> it's it's the perfect like foil to the original thing, because, you know, in your 20s, you're you're dating and you sort of like are struggling with like insecurity. So the metaphor is that you're kind of like competing with all this person's past boyfriends that, you know, sometimes, sometimes they'll bring them up and tell stories that kind of circumstantially involve them. And you kind of like start comparing yourself to all these people and stuff. And then, you know, and then the, the foil to that is in your thirties, you know, if something like that happened, you know, that this insecurity you deal with, like struggling to be like, imagining your ex-wife like with other men and things like yeah. that and, and just trying to cope with that. Yeah, that's a to- that, that totally tracks. So you're green lighting it? Yes. Okay, great. $150 million. Just Boom. Bump, bump, that, uh, bump that budget up by 20, 20 million. That's right. We're going to need it. Um, uh, so uh, Kevin Smith uh, has launched a real-life vegan version of movies in LA as a pop-up, a delivery only pop-up uh, to raise funds for a coronavirus charity, which is everything about this is just such a weird, it's so the, the, every detail. Of this is strange. 
Yeah, um, this is this is a weird one. Yeah, so Kevin Smith is bringing movies, his fictitious fast food restaurant scene in films including Dogma, Clerks 2, and Jay and Silent Bob to life as a delivery-only pop-up. The limited-run pop-up restaurant will operate from April 19th to April 25th in Los Angeles. Wait. So it already happened. What the fuck? We, oh, is, yeah, it, so, is it a thing that's already never happened? Never mind. This, 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 is, this is an old story that I just didn't. Oh, okay. I accidentally. I usually check the dates on these, but. Yeah, I was wondering about looks that. Looks like I missed that one. Looks like I didn't notice the date on there. So that's right. fine, though. The, the story wasn't even that interesting. No. Um, moving on. Uh, so the Undertaker, and I, I really wish that maybe we had somebody on the show that was a little bit more interested in wrestling because I feel like. I I have my time. My time well, maybe, was all maybe before you, this. Maybe you can. Oh, okay. I was going to say, maybe you can lead this because I, I, I appreciate wrestling now more than I did before because I have a lot of friends who are really into wrestling and they've kind of like turned me on to what they like about wrestling but before that I just never understood the appeal of wrestling Um, so I'm I'm just not a wrestling guy at all Uh, I was when I was a kid when I mean like you know Ricky the Dragon Steamboat Sting. That literally sounds like like a old fashioned boxer from the twenties or something like that. Like <laughs> Ricky like the I Dragon know, was I know, a I know who Sting is, but <clears throat> Jimmy S- Superfly Snooker. These these are nineteen twenties boxers. Like you're just you're talking. <laughs> no man, those are the, those are the hardcore uh, wrestlers. The Iron Sheik. I know of that. That's like eighties. Those are, these were all 80s. These were all throughout the 80s, maybe early 90s I watched. And then I, you know, I got, uh, I turned 21 and it was like, I can go to bars now. Yep. Uh, yeah, some some comedy writers in LA never had that transition. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you know who you're talking about. Yes. Uh, so, uh, you know, so as much as I can muster a sort of reverence for this, the uh, there's it's an end of an era as the Undertaker is a, has finally retired. Um, WWE legend the Undertaker seemingly announced his retirement from the wrestling ring in the final episode of The Last Ride. Uh, the Undertaker, real name Mark Calloway, has been a feature attraction for Vince McMahon's World Wrestling Entertainment for almost thirty years, making his debut as one years. of the WWE's. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, WWE's signature pay per view Survivor Series in November of 1990. The Undertaker's mythical dead man persona has <clears throat> long been praised for its longevity, and in more recent years, uh, he's taken a part-time role wrestling on a few occasions in big matches against John Cena and even Goldberg at WWE's Super Showdown last June. Um, uh, so he has this. They've had they've had this documentary series that's been coming out called The Last Ride, a five-part series that documents the Undertaker's career and life from 2017's WrestleMania to this year's WrestleMania. And at the culmination of this five-part series at the end, he basically kind of reflects on his career and basically, you know, in all, you know, in in uncertain terms, says that he's retiring for good. Um, so uh, the um, he shared the video on Twitter along with the video <clears throat> along with the video he had a caption that said, "You can never appreciate how long the road was until you're driven to the end." Seemingly confirming his retirement from the ring, and the tweet goes hand-in-hand hand with a quote from the episode itself where The Undertaker says, This time the cowboy really rides away. Uh, meaning his boneyard match with AJ Styles may have been the final match of his long and storied career. Um, how do I say goodbye? <laughs> uh, 
I mean, let that should have played the that should have been the credit sequence for the episode. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, less of a less of a thing for me of like really feeling a connection with this, but more of a for me that my reaction to this is just like, because, you know, all we know about contact, Jesus, all we know about contact sports and the. The uh, the terrible, terrible issues with head injuries and brain damage and CTE that have kind of been discovered, have existed as the silent killer uh, in, you know, in football and wrestling and how the how these careers like take massive tolls on the bodies of these athletes and how, you know, it's basically it's basically like a common understanding within the world of wrestling that later on in your life as a wrestler, you're eventually going to basically your body's going to fall apart and you're also probably going to go senile like with all like it's just it's just a commonly understood thing that like most wrestlers just deal with a lot of uh, mental health issues uh, Mm -hmm. later on in life. And, you know, as we've discovered in the last whatever, 10 years or however long it's been, um, it's because they have massive brain trauma that they've accumulated over years. So for me, my reaction to this is like, it's crazy to me that the undertaker seems to not only, I mean, obviously he's getting older, obviously he's not in the same shape as he was before, like in the same condition, but he seems, he seems to have weathered this whole thing relatively well. He doesn't seem to have been really afflicted with any physical or uh, brain uh, conditions that have like, affected his ability to function um and you know you got to wonder like what was he doing right yeah i don't know because that was a little i mean i knew of the undertaker i i guess by all accounts too he's like a great dude apparently he's like really nice and just like a good guy um particularly for somebody who's been in the that business for so long but if i had to guess is maybe he he wasn't so much a a high flying guy. He was yeah. such a, he's such a big, tall dude that maybe, you know, kind of like, I, it's funny. Cause, uh, during this, uh, time of Corona, I watched the documentary on, um, what's his name? Andre, the giant. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, he didn't suffer from those brain issues. He had other ish, uh, issues with his legs and his knees and yeah. his hips. Really tall, really real heavy bad. guy. But he, you know, he never did this stuff where he had to, where he hit his head that much. So I think maybe maybe it was something with that. I don't know. Yeah, he's but like he, less of a less of a acrobatic wrestler. Yeah, and more of a kind of on the ground grapple yeah. grappler. Just kind of like big guy, pick you up, smack you around. And yeah. Stuff. But yeah. Uh, good for him, man. I heard I, you know I've heard him interview. He's a, he seems like a really good dude. Uh, oh wait, let me give you another '80s uh, wrestler name that you'll like. Uh, Big John Stud, twenties boxer. <laughs> that's that's the game. Twenties boxer or eighties wrestler. <laughs> we need to play that next time. Yeah. <clears throat> um. So we talked about this a while back. Uh, of the uh the 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 cardigan that Kurt Cobain wore during the uh legendary MTV Unplugged performance, selling mm-hmm. at auction for three hundred thousand dollars. Yes. <clears throat> and it was like it was sold to the owner of pets.com 
um, or whatever, whatever that, whatever that website was, the, the, the thing yeah. from the, from the two thousands where it had that commercial with the puppet dog. Um, Oh yeah. Uh, uh, Petco. Pet, is it pet? I don't know. Whatever it was called. I'm, I'm yeah. Petco's the store. I, f- I forget what it was oh, called, yeah. but anyway, the, the owner of that thing bought yes. the, the cardigan and he's like a, he's an independent collector of music memorabilia. So now the uh, the acoustic guitar from that that Kurt Cobain played at MTV Unplugged has sold at auction for six million dollars. That's I mean. Before we get into it, you are a guitar guy. You know guitars because you play. Mm-hmm. Roughly ballpark it for me. How much do you think he paid for that guitar originally? Um, like how much Kirk Cobain goes into a store, buys a guitar. Yeah, so it's 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 a it's a nineteen. So this is this this guitar is not, uh, by any means a uh, like a run of the mill or a slouch guitar. This was a this okay. was a this was a nineteen fifty nine Martin D eighteen E because you gotta you gotta realize that at this point in his career, uh, Kirk Cobain was incredibly rich. So and he was also a musician and a and a and a guitar nerd. So he probably was he probably did buy a lot of expensive, super nerdy guitars. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> this this is a this is a good guitar, and it's and it's a it's a 1959. So this isn't just some guitar you walked into a store and bought. Okay. Um, okay. This is like a this is like a collector's item that he acquired and used for this performance, um, but. By no, I mean obviously the reason for this is because of the history attached to it, the person who played it, and all that stuff. But you know, there there is no guitar in the world that is worth six million dollars by yeah. far. By there, like by far. Yeah. Um, you I was six million dollars just laying around, and you're gonna in these in this day and age, you're gonna spend it on a guitar. Yeah, I mean th- this 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 guitar. You know, if it wasn't <clears throat> owned and played by Kurt Cobain during this legendary performance. You know, you could see yourself like this might this guitar might you know be sold at a uh at a guitar dealership for like a couple thousand dollars. Okay. That's insane. Um and even then I I unless I was rich, I I would never pay that much for a guitar. I would I would yeah. I would pay <clears throat> I would pay, you know, 500 bucks for a really good guitar that would be good for any of my recording purposes or performing purposes. Um, and, you know, sa- save the save the drop dropping thousands of dollars for guitar for down the line when I'm, you know, much, much more wealthy from all of my hit records. But yeah, all them <laughs> hits as as just a regular guy I would never I would never pay that much for a guitar. I mean, and I, and I mean, thousands of dollars, certainly not six million dollars. But you pay six million dollars uh-huh. for the lead guitarist of Whitesnake's guitar. Oh, a hundred percent. Because it's worth it, it means more. Yeah. Yeah. Just delivered hand delivered to me by <laughs> Tawny Katane, like sitting on the hood of a car. Yes. You just set a picture. What? You've just set a lovely picture. Oh yeah, of just an elderly woman, just <laughs> yeah. humiliated and yeah, being like because she has to do it. I had it's to like, do this. I I, this I, I, didn't, I didn't realize this was written into my contract back then. <laughs> like, why did I do? Why did I hook up with this guy from White Snake? 
Um, yeah, so the, the guy who bought this, uh, so it's it, it started off at a one million bid, and it received seven bids total, including the winning bid of six million dollars um, at the Julian's uh, auction house or whatever this place is called. Um, the guitar also came with its original hard shell case that Cobain had adorned with a flyer for the band Poison Ideas, 1990 album Feel the Darkness. Inside the case is a half-used uh, pack of Martin guitar straps, three picks, and a suede stash. Oh, wait a minute. Never mind. I didn't realize there was a suede stash. Or a suede... Uh, <laughs> There's a suede stash pack, so now it is yeah, worth $6 million. Yes, $6 million. I feel like that's underselling it. Yeah, um, it's funny. For a second, I thought the flyer was for the band Poison. Yeah, the way I read it, I, I the way I read it sounded like that. Yeah, I, I and I was I, like, I wow, it wrong. Cobain was a closeted <laughs> Poison fan. He was a huge Poison fan. Loved um, Unskinny Bop. <laughs> that song freaking sucks. <laughs> Couldn't get enough of it, man. Yeah. Oh God, my yeah. I mean, I I like some of that stuff from from that time. Like I, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pretty sizable Def Leppard fan. Um, I hate Poison. This is going to blow your mind. I saw them in concert. Oh yeah. I saw Poison open up for David Lee Roth in Cleveland, uh, probably 87. Uh, one of my friends was a huge fan and he's like, just come, just come with, I'll, I'll, you don't have to pay for the ticket. Just come. I was like, okay. And uh, David Lee Roth ended the concert by uh, climbing up on a surfboard up in the air and flying out in front out of the crowd. Sounds like a terrible night. <laughs> it kind of sucked. It did. I'm not going to lie. Um, soon after the auction, the buyer was revealed to be Peter Friedman of Rode Microphones. Uh, when I heard that this iconic guitar was up for auction... I immediately knew it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to secure it and use it as a vehicle to spotlight the struggles that those in the performing arts are facing and have always faced. Uh, Nirvana's Unplugged is one of the my favorite records of all time and easily one of the best live performances ever captured on film. They were a huge influence on me. The early 90s were Rhodes' formative years, and Nirvana's music was very much the soundtrack to the time of, that time of my life and that era of my company. Um... Friedman also said he planned to display the guitar in a worldwide tour of exhibitions with all proceeds, including the guitar, going to the performing arts. Oh, well, that's nice. <clears throat> yeah. Who knew that Rhodes, Rode Microphones had that much, uh, was that successful that someone's got $6 million? Yeah, the, to, the right. owner of it or the the founder of it or CEO or whatever he is uh, yeah. just drops $6 million of his own money Yeah, on a guitar. Uh, but if he's if he's donated to the performing arts, I'll 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 support him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you always it's it, on one hand you you see this and you're just kind of like gobsmacked by the decadence of these rich people spending millions of dollars on just like stupid stuff. Yeah. When there are people that are just like starving in the streets and things like that, but at the very least, you like to see it kind of being done with in a sort of charitable way and not just like yeah. a guy who's like, I'm putting this above my fireplace. <laughs> it will never be touched. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, um, yeah, so that's fine. Yeah. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we come back. We're going to do 
not Can You Go For That, but a slightly different segment. After these messages, we'll be right back. And we're back. And now we're uh, unfortunately going to do a segment that shouldn't have to exist, but does, called... Racism Reckoning, oh, 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 you can't do that. Racism Reckoning, oh, 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 you can't do that. Racism Reckoning, oh, oh, we gotta change this stuff, cause it's racist. It's so racist, why has this existed for this long? You made that work, <laughs> but yeah, I know. <laughs> it's so sad that we have to do this. <laughs> What? Oh, what this. Um, so in in the you know we 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 missed a week, so we kind of missed you know some of the beginning of this. But in the last couple of weeks, there's been a chain reaction of this cultural reckoning within pop culture of going back and being like, uh, we're finally gonna change these things that have like existed for decades and decades, and are just kind of nakedly built on some kind of racist iconography and they've just sort of been allowed to go on, I guess. Um, And some of these things are more serious than others, but ultimately, you know, a lot of people are going to be triggered by these things and be like, Oh, the world is too PC and Oh, this is so stupid. Like what, you know, people are too sensitive and all this stuff like that. And there's also, you know, there's something to be said about, there's a little bit of a validity to the idea that the this changing these things is is a very like empty gesture uh, can, uh, compared to what people actually want to happen, which is, you know, actual things that affect people's lives on a daily basis being changed and reformed. Uh, so in in some ways, like a company being like, oh, we're just going to change our mascot is I mean, it's a it's a good thing ultimately, but it feels a little <clears throat> uh, empty in in uh, comparison to the things that people are asking to be changed. Um, but, you know, at the same time, it's you know, it's regard. I think it's uh, I no, I would slightly disagree and say that. I get what you're saying because it's 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 a small thing of a bigger issue, and that bigger issue is really what's at the heart of this. Yeah. But uh, these small little changes, I think, are good, and it's a good stepping stone. Yeah. And I, if it's gonna, you know, definitely if it's, and you're, I know you agree with me too, but if it's gonna make people feel better, be like, and not feel bad, which is how it's been going for decades and hundreds of years then let's do this small little thing and then build on it and build on it and build on it. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, but I, but I did, I, I saw a, a meme that was kind of funny to me where it was like, it was a picture of Ron Weasley from Harry Potter, like in a car looking at the camera crying. And then out of the window, they photoshopped a picture of Daniel Radcliffe from that movie guns akimbo where he's got those guns like oh, yeah. attached mm-hmm. to his arms and kind of just standing there looking insane and menacing. And, it was like uh, over over Daniel Radcliffe. Um, the text said like 
companies getting rid of Aunt Jemima and Chase from Paw Patrol. And then over the text over Ron Weasley was uh, people just asking for police to be held accountable for their actions. Um, so oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, uh, so yeah. That, that's kind of but, the idea I'm going after. But I but I don't disagree that I, I just you know it, it this it's all a complicated topic. There's no there's not one cl- clear cut uh, cut and dry answer. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, in the macro sense, it's a good thing. Uh, but also on the same hand, this is just companies doing this because they don't want to get in trouble and they don't want people to stop buying their products. So it's 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 a it's a multifaceted thing that doesn't have one clear cut narrative to it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I like it. Yeah, but still good start. Yeah. Let's and keep doing more. So um, Splash Mountain is going to be completely reimagined. Um, and, you know, if you don't know if you've been to Disneyland and you've ridden the ride or if you haven't been to Disneyland and you've just heard about it um, and you don't know this, the, the, the theme of Splash Mountain is all based on a movie from 1946 called Song of the South that isn't publicly available. It was it was uh, it was pulled by Disney and never released again um, very quickly after it came out because it was it was universally kind of regarded as um, featuring some very racist imagery. Um, Incredibly. Yeah. Yeah. And so this movie was highly controversial at the time. It came out, it was immediately kind of pulled and put into Disney's vault forever. And it's sort of just, it's just remained as this like unreleased, uh, non-official lost movie in Disney's history. Uh, Yeah. But there have been a couple of things that have weirdly escaped from it. Uh, The song Zippity Doodah is from Song of the South. And the song, the song won an Emmy or not an Emmy, a, a Grammy Grammy um, back in the day. And it's sort of it's sort of in, endured as this just kind of universally recognized song that everybody knows. Um, but it's from this movie that isn't released. Um, and the other thing is, in conjunction with the movie, they built Splash Mountain at Disneyland back in the, you know, in the in the late 40s um, that features all the characters from Song of the South. But whenever the movie kind of got pulled and stricken from the uh, official canon of Disney, this ride just continued on and just continued to exist. So Splash Mountain for all this time is it's based on this move this this movie with these really racist imagery that got banned and sort of doesn't really exist anymore um which yeah. has always been strange i've always i've always find that found that very fascinating that this ride exists it has all these characters it doesn't necessarily have the racist imagery in it but it's based on this movie and most people probably don't know that they probably have no idea they just like oh it's splash mountain i've just it's just you go to splash mountain and you go in there and there's all these like there's this rabbit character and all these animals and they sing uh they sing this song and then you go down the 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 hill or whatever yeah um and that's it um and many many people don't know that it's based on this movie uh but and i've also i've always found it interesting and fascinating that disney has not received more criticism for this than it has 
Um, it's always seemed like this weird unspoken thing where as much as people have called out other companies for things, uh, this has always just kind of flown under the radar. Um, there's also another thing at Disneyland that I've always been super surprised has flown under the radar, not been more highly criticized. And it's certain aspects of the Jungle Cruise where as you're going through the Jungle Cruise, oh, there's yeah. all these parts where they go into like these African villages and there's these really um, stereotypical depictions of these like savage African tribes people. Um and I've I've always been super shocked that that doesn't get more uh, criticism than than it has, uh, and a part of me feels like it's the it's coming because this this is the this is the the beginning of it. Uh, the Splash Mountain. I don't know if it was because of a backlash or if it was just Disney trying to get ahead of the problem and do damage control before they start getting criticized for it, but they're going to completely change Splash Mountain to be a Princess and the Frog themed ride. I believe that they were planning to do that in the first place. And now with all that's going on in the world, they're like, oh, let's fast track this. Yeah, we're not we're not open anyway. So let's just get this shit done now and and, and end it. Yeah, good, it's funny good too because I think a lot of it also maybe that song is like I mean I didn't know that was from that song as a kid or that song was from that movie. Yeah, and it's everywhere. I think kids today know that song. It's just kind of in the ether, and you don't know the history of of where that song comes from. And when you do, you're just like, wait, what? That song. So I think it's just been in the ether for so long. Yeah, I mean, it's really it's really crazy how much of how much things come from a place of historical darkness like that. And we just have no idea. And one of my blind spots I'll talk about in a second. But, you know, another one we've talked about in the past on the podcast in some early episodes is just cartoon characters in general. And yeah. it's it's crazy that, to think that it's crazy to, to think that. The concept of cartoons comes from this place of racism. That's so bizarre, but it just it just speaks to how uh, racism has has like our our country and pop culture in our country is just built on this found foundation of of racism. Because to think that the entire concept of cartoons came from from that, you know, <clears throat> animation and cartoons. Uh, dating back to you know the 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 twenties, thirties, and forties, um, all of those all of those characters, you know the Disney characters, the Warner Brothers characters, the early like silent cartoons, um, they were all based on uh, vaudeville, and largely a lot of the characters were sort of patterned after the minstrel show aspect of vaudeville which was people dressing in blackface and imitating black people and doing these comedy routines where they were kind of making fun of and mocking the stereotypical behavior of of black people that was sort of regarded at that time. And cartoons were created to emulate that. And that's why um, cartoon characters have gloves because it was minstrel character minstrel act minstrel oh, characters wore yeah. those white gloves it, and it's it's crazy that that's that's the case um 
and kind of mind blowing when you when you when you discover that, which I did, you know, when I was probably a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, this is another one where that song, like you said, it just kind of exists in the ether, and you're just like, oh, that delightful song. And then yeah, you're like, every oh, little kid sings it, yeah. knows it, and that just it really does go to show just how deeply rooted racism is in this country. It's just it's so institutionalized that you don't even like realize it. Yeah, and it's really it's really frustrating to I mean, I I'd like to see that I I'd like to think that I've tried to educate myself on, on these things, but you still learn new things every day and have these blind spots for things that you learn something and you're just like, I can't believe that that is the way that is. And it's really frustrating like to for that process to to play out where you have these things that you really like and to f- that 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 inevitable like reveal when you finally like discover like, oh, this is based on some racist thing, too. Like, God dang it. Like, is there anything that isn't? Yeah. Right. And then also you're like, why didn't I see that? What's wrong with me? I, yeah. I, I did. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And you're like. What the fuck is wrong with you that I didn't see this from the first time? Yeah, and, that's, and I and I have a thing so like great. that on here in a second. Um, that I still it's it blew my mind when I found it out like in the last week or so. Um, it's not this though. So the next one is uh, Wizard of the Coast is going to address racist stereotypes in Dungeons and Dragons. I didn't and, even know that was a thing. Well, this one's kind of weird to me. I'll read this. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get your thoughts on this. Obviously, we're, we're, we're not the, the authority figures on this thing, but no. this, this is kind of weird to me. Uh, so Dungeons and Dragons developers Wizard of the Coast will change how they describe and characterize fantasy races in future story modules. In a blog post last week, the publishers of the largest tabletop role-playing game explained how some of their past characterizations have been racially insensitive and set forth a list of actions they're taking to rectify this. In the post... Wizards of the Coast explained that some of the peoples in the game, orcs and drow being two of the prime examples, have been characterized as monstrous and evil, using descriptions that are painfully reminiscent of how real-world ethnic groups have been and continue to be denigrated. Um, Classic D&D settings describe orcs as bestial and savage, bred for war and little else, while the elven drow are utterly and irredeemably evil with their forthcoming adventuring guides, wizard hopes, wizards hope to eliminate the, these absolutist and reductive descriptions. To address these issues, wizard is, Wizards is committed to improving how fantasy races will work in present books and upcoming releases. Highlights include working with people from specific marginalized communities to consult on depictions of their culture within D&D. Issued, issuing corrected reprints of books and ha- with harmful characterizations, working with sensitivity readers to ensure mistakes aren't repeated and expanding their hiring practices to ensure diverse talent on their team. Um, the two latest books, uh, Eberron, Rising of the Last War and Explorer's Guide to Wildermount, feature new characterizations of drow and, drow and, orc, drow and orcs, um, representing them in a new light to make them just as morally and culturally complex as other people's. Um, you might as well have spoken all of that in French. I mean, to, to, you know, to, to simplify and, and just, you know, summarize uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, there are just all these different fantasy races. They're orcs. And you know what yeah. orcs are from like Lord of the Rings. I know an orc. I could not figure out what a drow is. It's like an elf. It's like a it's like an evil elf type creature. Um, oh, okay. But either way, whatever they are, they're all these different creatures, different races of creatures. And, you know, they are all depicted in various levels of, you know, like like dwarves are kind of like regarded as good guys. They're 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 a good race. And 
uh and uh whereas like and elves are a good race like elves are like the most the most um the most righteous of the races they're kind of like regarded as the perfect one they're even like better than humans uh but then you have like orcs who are just like evil they're just they're just like an evil uh species um and what they're basically saying is that they the, their depictions of these of the evil species is draws comparison to the way that certain ethnic groups have been demonized throughout history um so you know more diverse hiring at wizards of the coast 100 percent. that's um, great i agree with in theory the idea of making these uh classes of characters more complex and not just painting certain classes as just like this is just an evil mm -hmm. group of people um but part of this just feels weird to me because it's like because you know the orcs they're 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 monsters like they're it, it's not like they it's not like they have a race of of characters in dungeons and dragons that are like just kind of people with like black skin who are kind mm -hmm. of called evil like these are monsters like and so there's something kind of strange to me like it's like so you're 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 comparing black people to monsters like that, that just seems so strange to me that 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 seems like like you're you're com you're comparing black people or other ethnic groups or or native americans or whatever whatever they're kind of referring to here <clears throat> you're comparing them to like monsters and beasts it, well, I guess <laughs> they're worried that that's the perception. Yeah, I mean, the other way around. It's yeah. like <clears throat> thinking that we are saying that these people are like black people. These monsters are like black yeah. people or or whatever ethnic group. Um, but to actually draw that comparison and say, like, we want to make orcs, who are these literal monsters, more complex and less of a black and white evil or good type scenario and make them more kind of like on a spectrum because we don't want people to we don't want to further these stereotypes about like certain ethnic groups being painted as evil or barbaric or savage or whatever i yeah I, I agree with it in general but there's something about it that just strikes me as strange of just like comparing ethnic groups to monsters i don't know oh i mean it could be again like one of those we're getting ahead of the curve and yeah having as you know having nothing invested in dungeons and dragons i'm like okay do it that sounds great because if you're gonna if you're a DD fan and you're gonna balk at that if you're gonna be like well wait why are you doing that then check yourself i mean to be clear a lot of DD fans are gonna freak out like are they yeah like i mean we we i feel like we've talked about this before but like the thing that we've learned in this new era i think i think the big the the big um the the big lie that we all believed in the 90s i mean i guess i think i feel like especially in the 90s but that we've always believed is that nerds have always been oppressed by the like jocks and the popular people mm. and that if nerds ran the world it would be a better place that was the big lie we all believed and now mm. we've learned in the last 15 years or so that nerds are awful people 
they are they're just they're they've taken all of the um oppression and abuse and mockery um and trivialization and bullying that has been um hoisted on them and they've they instead of instead of <clears throat> instead of taking that on and then working to overcome the anxieties and fears and hurt and pain that that has caused them and trying to funnel it outward into a place of positivity they've instead internalized it Mm -hmm. And then decided that I want to make somebody else feel as bad as I feel. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying all nerds, hashtag not all nerds or whatever. I'm a nerd. I'm, well, I mean, the, the, I mean, the, term, yeah. the terminology is, uh, is a little off. Like yeah. nerds are technically people, nerds are people who get really obsessed and become experts on some specific thing. So you have like a math nerd or whatever. A mm -hmm. geek is somebody who's like really obsessed with, like a fandom like a like a like a nerd is somebody who's like really good at math or knows like all of the specific details about the like races of dungeons and dragons and what they all do and all these things like that and a geek is somebody who's like loves playing dungeons and dragons and and loves watching farscape or whatever but it's all in the kind of the same stratosphere but what i'm saying is i'm not saying all of those people are like that i am one of those people but i think a lot of them as we've learned have a ton of internalized misogyny because they've been rejected by women all their lives and instead of real instead of thinking like maybe i should work on myself and do something to make myself more interesting and 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 uh and desirable to women by learning about them and asking them how they feel and talking to them as, you know, equal human beings. Instead, they've they've internalized this idea of like women are evil because I'm a nice guy and they reject me and they only want to date these asshole chads or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so women are bad. And so they don't belong in my world. So if there's ever mm -hmm. a woman who tries to pretend like she is into video games or Dungeons and Dragons, like she's fake and she is pretending and she just wants attention. So like, I'm going to harass her and, you know, completely ostracize her because she's a liar and a fake and she doesn't want to date me. Mm -hmm. um, and th there's, there, there's so much of that stuff in, in nerd culture, this internalized misogyny and racism. So, so there will be uh, a lot of toxic men upset about this. A hundred percent. I mean, like, it's just exhausting. Yeah. It's it's like there's I mean, like you're going to be mad at that. That's the thing you're mad at. Yeah. But I, mean, you, I mean, you're right. If you get past the my, my my sticking point is like I feel some there's some little fringe part of me that feels uncomfortable with the idea of comparing like ethnic groups to monsters. But aside from that, what they're actually saying here, like if you get past your knee jerk reaction of like hating it because it's changing something. All they're really saying is we're going to make these characters more interesting. Like that's yeah, all. Gonna, that's right, all this is they're going saying. To be better. Yeah, they're, 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 people are going to have their triggered knee jerk reaction of hating it because it's making it about race or like making it political or whatever. And people will just 
they don't like that because they don't like their thoughts to be challenged. So they like to keep their world apolitical because they just don't like to think. Um, but if you get past that, if you punch past the crust of that, all they're really saying is we are taking our characters and making them more complex and interesting. Yeah, uh, we're making the game better. Yeah, we're, you're you're welcome. But you know, yeah, they're gonna but, pe- pe- but people, yeah. Um, so I mean, I, I feel like the the biggest, most like red letter story that happened uh, in terms of just how big the story became was that they're going to change uh, the Aunt Jemima brand of mm. pancakes and pancake syrup to remove the name and the image of uh, Aunt Jemima uh, for perpetuating this racist stereotype about a um um a, a mammy character which is a like black maid that was depicted in a lot of movies and cartoons and and TV shows back in the early days um which is essentially just like a white family a, a white nuclear family you know living together in a house and then they have this sort of like black maid who walks around just kind of like saying sassy things and She's totally deferential to the white characters and her entire role is her entire existence is just to be like the person who validates the white characters. And and so uh, that's what this Aunt Jemima mascot is based on. Um, So they're changing it. Uh, However, the families of the models um, who portrayed Aunt Jemima at certain periods in time are not happy about this. Uh, I'm so confused. Well, I mean, if you look at this, if you look at this as a clickbait headline and you don't actually read the story, I feel like this is this story is going to be used by a lot of um, racist or not necessarily racist, but people who just don't like change, don't like PC culture and uh, and don't like this. It's going to be used by a lot of them as like a straw man argument to be like, see, even the black family of the Aunt Jemima don't want this. Uh, but if you really read the story, it actually kind of clarifies it a little bit more. And it's not quite that way. The families aren't saying like, this is dumb. Like, oh, I'll read it. So two families of women who portrayed Aunt Jemima say they oppose Quaker Oats plan to rename the brand of syrup and pancake mixes um, and change the iconic figure. Quaker Oats announced last week it would retire Aunt Jemima because it's based on a racial stereotype. Um saying its prior work to update the character was not enough. Originally, Aunt Jemima was shown with a wide smile and wearing a bandana on her hair, an image that faced criticism for years as it was accused of encouraging racist stereotypes. Um, In 1989, the image was revamped with a new model wearing pearl earrings earrings with straightened curls. Anna Short Harrington is believed to be the model after Green. Uh, Larnell Evans Sr., Harrington's great-grandson, told Patch that he was hurt and offended by the brand's decision. Uh, this is an injustice for me and my family. This is part of my history, Evan to- Evans told Patch. The racism they talk about using images from slavery, that comes from the other side, white people. This company profits off images of our slavery, and their answer is to erase my great-grandmother's history. Um, the family of Lillian, Lillian Richard, a native of Hawkins, Texas, also spoke out against the rebranding decision. Richard was the face of Aunt Jemima from 1929 to 1940, a Texas CBS station reported. Um, I wish we would uh, take a breath and not just get rid of everything. 
because good or bad, it is our history. Uh, Vera Harris, family historian for the Richard family, told KLTV, removing that wipes away a part of me, a part of each of us. Uh, we are proud of our cousin. So, I mean, I think, once again, I'm not an authority, but I, I think I can quickly unpack exactly what is being said here because I've thought about this a little bit. Please, because I'm... So, you know, they don't they don't want this to be changed or they don't want this to be completely. They don't want them to just completely get rid of Aunt Jemima, the name and the image, because for better or worse, whatever racist stereotype it's based on, it's a part of their heritage and it's a part of their uh, their great grandmothers or great cousins or whatever's Mm -hmm. legacy. Um, so you're, you're essentially, you know, for a family that the original Aunt Jemima was uh, the, the model who played her was a slave during the mm-hmm. Civil War era. So imagine, you know, somebody who lived their life as a slave was literally owned by another human being, was treated as slave labor, manual labor. Their life, their existence was all centered around just servicing somebody who owned them. Didn't have mm-hmm. a great life. Uh, and then, you know, after the Civil War, after they were freed, ended up becoming the face of Aunt Jemima. Um, so as fucked up as that is, and as much as that is based on a racial, racial stereotype, you know, that was maybe one of the best things that ever happened to that woman, which is so fucked up. But yeah. it's it's just the case. It's like, this is what life handed me. This is my little shred of something good that came out of my life um and you know similar to the other woman they didn't they didn't live as slaves but you know facing facing a lifetime of racial segregation and racial injustice and racial mistreatment this one little thing that they got to call their own was being at jemima so these families feel like you know it's a it's an erasing of the legacy of the of those women and their family um and and as they say you know good good or bad it just it's really hurtful and hard to cope with that we're basically like you profited off of a, off of us in our in this racial stereotype for all these years and then the moment that you kind of are facing backlash and you don't want to get in trouble you don't want to lose money you'll just your answer is just not necessarily to own up and accept responsibility and accountability for these things but just oh, oh delete it like it it never happened mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that probably, at least for these families, I feel like what would be the right answer or what they would want to happen is that Aunt Jemima stays, the brand stays, the imagery stays. Well, not the imagery, but the, the, the women that portrayed them stays, but that they take the character and like use it to acknowledge the history of systemic racism like maybe and i i'm not this would never happen but i'm just saying like i feel like this is what they would want mm-hmm. is Aunt Jemima stays they keep releasing the pancakes and the syrups with the Aunt Jemima branding but that like on a box of Aunt Jemima it has like a little text blurb that talks about the history of systemic racism and slavery and you know explains the meaning mm-hmm. behind this racist racist imagery that Aunt Jemima was based on and kind of like 
attempts to educate and atone for the racism that was capitalized off of to make the Aunt Jemima brand. And that maybe like there would be like a series of commercials where an Aunt Aunt Jemima character that was a more modern black woman would come on and talk about the horrible racism that the character was based on. So basically using the brand as this sort of like metatextual um, uh, reflection and atonement and acknowledgement for the racism and the mm-hmm. and that the brand was built off of. I feel like that is what they would probably want. Like don't just don't, I, don't just erase it and pretend like it never happened. Like own up to it. Like don't just do this because you're scared of losing money. Like own it. Take it take responsibility for it. Make commercials, spend millions of dollars making commercials where you basically allow a black woman to go on camera and say this company profited from racism and slavery image for decades and it's fucked up uh i feel like i feel like that would be a thing that's would never happen but i feel like that's that's what people would like that would never happen although it'd be great to see like on the on the bottle of syrup of just like here's like you said like here's what we did wrong here's how we profited here's how uh racism is ingrained in our society here's here's uh places you can make donations to and like just have that be the bottle yeah and then also like no way and then also a percentage of the all profits from aunt jemima Mm -hmm. will go to whatever yeah um there's no way a corporation would do that yeah they would never do that but that that's the that's the that's the shangri-la that's the yeah that's the ideal thing in a vacuum that could happen Mm. um where i feel like it would make people happy um either dismantle your company and just cease to exist because your entire company is based off of profiting profiteering off of slavery images or you do all this stuff and you all forever for the rest of your company's existence you donate portions of the of your profits to certain organizations um the other one is that they're changing uncle ben from Uncle Ben's Rice as well. Um, hours after Quaker annou- Quaker Oats announced it was changing, it was retiring Aunt Jemima. Um, yeah, this all happened kind of like yeah. uh, a little domino effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I mean, these all these stories are a domino effect. It's like the Aunt Jemima thing led into Uncle Ben, like literally hours later, which um, led into a couple of these other stories. It was all a bunch of food brands uh, kind of doing this. And then that dovetailed into Disney, uh, Disneyland talking about Song from the South. And they're, they're, the stories are all linked by they're all about um, products or things that are utilizing slavery imagery in their packaging. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So Uncle, Uncle Ben is 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 uh, is is going to change their their brand. Um as a global brand, we know we know we have a responsibility to take a stand in helping to put an end to racial bias and injustices. Uh, as we listen to the voices of consumers, especially in the black community, and to the voices of our associates worldwide, we recognize that now is the right time to evolve the Uncle Ben's brand, including its visual brand identity, which we will do. Um, and then here's here's my blind spot, uh, something that kind of blew my mind. So. Uh, they're changing. They're also going to change Mrs. Butterworth's 
They're getting, mm-hmm. they're retiring Mrs. Butterworth. They're getting rid of her. I had no idea that Mrs. Butterworth was black. Uh, I, th- I thought Mrs. Butterworth was a white grandma. I think, God, I'm trying to remember because there were commercials where Mrs. Butterworth, the bottle would come to life. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. I'm going to, can I give you a hot take? Out of the oven. Okay. Uh, syrup's terrible. Maple syrup. <laughs> I don't you like know, maple syrup. You know, it's funny. I, I like, I kind of don't have a dog in the race because I never really liked pancakes at all when I was a kid. Uh, it was definitely my least favorite breakfast to have. Um, syrup or no syrup. I wasn't, I wasn't a fan. Um, my wife makes really good pancakes that I actually do like. And I've kind of gr- developed a newer appreciation for pancakes. But also, my wife does not like syrup at all. We do not eat syrup on our pancakes. Yeah, I don't like syrup at all. My, if uh, if we have like pancakes or French toast, uh, the rest of my family likes maple syrup. I put powdered sugar. It's delightful. Yeah, we, we just don't put anything on it. We yeah. just we just eat like we eat pancakes with our with our hands like as as sure. like a as like a bread or something like that. That's creepy and garbagey and weird. I don't like that, and I want you to fix it. I mean, why why eat it with a fork if you can just pick it up and eat it like a hand food? Because <laughs> pancakes not a hand food. But it is when it doesn't have any syrup or anything on it. If you are not going to have class, then yes, it is a hand food. <laughs> If you want to clash your life up, then it's a knife and fork food. Speaking of which, check out the new podcast, Food Fight, with your host, Kirk Pinchon, where he, t- he debates people on food topics. That's Food Fight, anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you, Andrew. Um, yeah, so I, they're, they're going to change that. But I, yeah, I, 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 I didn't know. I always thought I always thought that like Aunt Jemima was this weird racist yeah. thing. And that Mrs. Butterworth, like, I, I feel like I've made jokes about that in the past where I'm like, Mrs. Butterworth is the non-racist Aunt Jemima. Hmm. I don't know now. Now I, I'm like, I never thought of it. But now that I'm making the decision to think about it, I kind of go, I can see it. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know. But again, sure. Change it. Why not? It's not a big deal. Yeah. Um, there's also this, there's also this other like disturbing aspect of it of just like you have these bottles that's like a human that you're just like pouring their juice out of onto your pancakes like that's just strange <laughs> human juice on your pancakes yeah um it's it's less weird when it's like a cuddly bear for some reason like the the bear honey things but, oh, okay but when it's just an old lady like that's just it's kind of weird. Doesn't get you going. Um, and then also, uh, they're they're changing the cream of wheat packaging with like the black chef on it. Um, which that one is it's another one where it's like, is that I I never thought of that as racist. It's it's just a it's just a black chef. I honestly don't even. I've never really I've never had cream of wheat, and I've only known of it in like the ether. I don't think I've ever even. Passed by it in yeah, a I mean, store. I mean, look at this. I, I I don't know. I mean, like I said, I, maybe maybe this is. I didn't know about Mrs. Butterworth. I didn't know that she was based on like the same mammy stereotype as as uh as Aunt Jemima. 
Um, that completely blew my mind. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this and it's like, he just looks like a black chef. Hmm. Like, is this some kind of racist thing? You know, I don't know. But when they put the, since 1893, kind of. Yeah, go, that, that's mm. when you're like, oh, man, this guy wasn't a chef or he wasn't yeah. getting paid to be a when, chef, at least. When they proudly present this as cream of wheat since 1893, you kind of go. Mm, yeah, you yeah. Got, you got to assume that like that, that chef, yeah. that chef wasn't uh, wasn't getting a paycheck. Yeah. Um, Let's just assume it. Because yeah, that, that, this that, is that's another America. one that I just never occurred to me. I just never I just thought it was, you know, a black chef. Um. What the hell? Uh, you're on Eskimo Pie. Yeah. Well, it's, for some reason, my outline just closed out. Let me pull it back up. Something happened whenever I did that, and it closed my entire um, browser. Uh, yeah, and then uh, I think the last of the food things is that they're they're changing Eskimo pie to be something different because um, uh, if you don't know Eskimo has been kind of like in the last five or so years kind of like been reassigned as kind of a bit of a racial slur um, people don't like being called the Eskimo here's the thing too again because it's food I'm like it's going to taste the same yeah, it's the exact same ice cream yeah, treat. I mean, it's a, any of these things. It's like if, if so, if anyone if is going to get mad at if that, if you are getting like, if you are, if you are like focusing, and and plus, and trust me, people are like, I am in some, I am in some, uh, some Facebook groups for it's like some nineteen seventies Facebook groups. Like, there's all these different nostalgia Facebook groups, and there's ones for the seventies, and I'm in a bunch of them um, for sharing. Uh, stuff like in, if, if do a podcast or whatever and it's about like a 70s thing i'll like share it in these things I'm, I'm not in these groups by for like my own personal entertainment but i'm in a lot of facebook groups and i'm in a bunch of these 70s ones and like this was huge for whatever reason i don't know why in the 70s one specifically but this was giant people were were fucking angry about this wow. it got it got so bad that one of the groups like had to issue a statement being like they they posted this post being like we are we are officially like no longer allowing discussion of the Aunt Jemima story in this group anymore and we will and we will not tolerate any racist discussion you will immediately be banned it got wow. it got it got so bad it's that, crazy because it's the same food it's yeah. going to taste the same but if you are if you are if this is like bothering you this much and you are spending this much time uh, like living in anger and focusing on this like you need to reassess your priorities you just yeah. you need to you need, yeah you need to take a hard look at your life and be like why is pancake syrup the most important thing in my life right now <laughs> yeah why is this ice cream treat that's gonna still taste the same why am i mad that i that they're changing the name and i don't like it yeah it's the, crazy the last uh one that i think has sort of really the last big story that i feel like has come 
uh, in the last couple of weeks. Um, I'm sure there'll be more, but uh, all streaming services have pulled uh, four episodes of 30 Rock um, that featured characters in blackface. Um, Tina Fey, creator and star of the Emmy award-winning series 30 Rock, has asked streaming services to remove several of the show's episodes that feature white actors in blackface. Faye apologized for the episodes and the pain they have caused, according to a letter Faye wrote to streaming services. The letter has was first attained by Vulture and confirmed to CNN through NBC Universal and Faye's agent. As we strive to do the work and do better in regards to race in America, we believe that these episodes featuring actors in race-changing makeup are best taken out of circulation, she said. I understand now that the intent is not a free pass that intent is not a free pass for white people to use these images. The episodes set to be pulled include season three, episode two, season five, episode four, season five, episode 10, and season six, episode 19. Two of them feature Jane Krakowski, who is white in blackface, and John Hamm appears in blackface in another. Vulture reported, some of them have been pulled from Hulu and Amazon, and some of the episodes are still available for purchase on YouTube as of Tuesday. And again, this all, like like we've been saying, this was all in like a week's time. Yeah. It all, it just, it was all a chain reaction. Like we, you know, we didn't do uh, last week's and since then this has all happened and it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, but it's also, I mean, I, I don't want to, I won't get super like political or into this stuff like on this podcast, but like it, it, it's an interesting show of dichotomy between the corporate world and the governmental world where like the fear that corporations have about losing profits and losing their customer base can bring immediate action on things like a company who has existed for like a hundred years, like overnight, just being like, we're changing our name. Yeah. Uh, compared to the inaction by the government, um, to make changes on certain things because they don't have that same fear. Like they don't, Yeah, they should have that same fear because the government like works for us and that's how it should be, but that's definitely not how they feel or how our society has sort of evolved. So they don't have that same, they don't have that same fear to, of like retribution for by the public. So, you know, yeah, in it, theory they should be. Yeah. If democracy really worked, sorry to get political too, but if democracy really worked, they'd be like, they should be like, Oh shit. Yeah. But they don't. And it, but, but, but that just that, that, that profit aspect will cause these corporations to make these just immediate, huge sweeping changes. Um, just, just a really, a really fascinating comparison. So last story, um, before we, before we wrap up the show, uh, RIP to Joel Schumacher, who uh, passed away from cancer at 80. Um, many people will probably recognize him, not in, an, not in a positive way, as the director of uh, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. So he directed the, the Batman movies that most people regard as really bad. I mean, Batman Forever... That's not bad. Less Batman so, is not bad. But Batman and Robin, just people, uh, you know, universally yeah. regarded as a terrible movie. I mean, you have, you've got the bat nipples. You've got yeah. the, you've got the horrible ice puns from oh, Arnold God, Schwarzenegger playing that. Mr. Yeah. Freeze. Um, uh, you know, so, you know, he, but, but Joel Schumacher was so much more than those movies. 
you know, in, in many ways, it, you know, it kind of wasn't his fault. It's like, you know, you give Joel Schumacher, like, direct these Batman movies. Like, he wasn't the right, the right fit for that. Um, but in reality, if you want to, if you want to, you know, just disregard that, you know, Joel Schumacher, he directed The Lost Boys. Classic. He directed, he directed uh, St. Animal's Fire. He directed, Classic that hasn't uh, uh, aged well. I'm sure it hasn't. I haven't seen it since I was a kid when it came on HBO. Yeah. But um, he directed Falling Down. Underrated. Yeah. Michael Douglas. It's, and, it was it was that white rage thing of mm-hmm. before it was it became you know white male privilege and all that before it really uh, became a thing. Yeah, the the Fight Club thing, the the American Beauty thing. Yeah, lar- largely kind of uh, a little he dated. Start, but, he kind of started but yeah. it. Yeah, uh, and and my favorite, Flatliners. Flatliners is good, man. Yeah, that is a good movie. That's my favorite Joel Schumacher movie. Yeah. Um, that's uh that's he was great at finding like young talent man mm-hmm. so yeah before before you malign joel schumacher because he made batman and robin he directed lost boys they're only noodles michael <laughs> maggots you're eating maggots michael how do they taste fucking best part of the movie love yeah. it lost boys is good yeah i used to live in santa cruz where they shot it and you know they have the, they have the boardwalk over there, and they shot some of it on the college campus. Oh shit! I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So he he passed away. Uh, um, while his Batman films will have him uh, uh, live in infamy infamy as for as long as the character is around, Joel Schumacher was also notable as one of Hollywood's most openly gay directors, who is increasingly recognized for adding adding LGBTQ themes and aesthetic into otherwise traditional Hollywood gen- genre fare. Um, he was a one of a kind visionary, love or hate that vision, and will surely be missed. Yep. R.I.P. Lost Boys. Lost Boys Alone. Yep. Uh, so that's it. Uh, thanks for listening. If you like the show, feel free to, sub- and you haven't done so, feel free to subscribe. If you have a friend that you think might enjoy the show, share it with them. Um, if you want to keep up to date with the news about the podcast or any of the nostalgic content we post on a daily basis, you can follow our Facebook page, the official nostalgia Facebook page Just search for nostalgia on Facebook. And that's us with the blue check mark next to our name. You can join our Facebook group, the nostalgia Facebook group, just search groups and uh, for nostalgia. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at nostalgia. Um, and, uh, yeah, stay, stay safe, stay healthy, stay, uh, not racist. And uh, thanks for listening.